I think if the foundation is that your story matters because it comes from you and you have value because your story is unique and special, that makes the difference. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I am your host, Nicholas Krolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space and my website, nicholaskrolak.com or on Instagram at Nicholas underscore Krolak. Mike Bond is one of my favorite pianists on the New York scene today. He has performed with Sevian Glover, Conrad Herwig, Joe Magnarelli, and Dwayne Eubanks, to name a few and is a featured sideman on guitarist Jean Chamont's debut album, The Beauty of Differences, which received a four-star review in Downbeat Magazine. As a leader, Bond has performed at Smalls, Mesro, as well as the Central Jersey Jazz Festival, the Canadian Music Festival in Toronto, and the New York City Winter Jazz Festival. He's musical director at the non-denominational Jacobs Well Church in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and is a community advisory board member for the award-winning jazz station 88.3 WBGO. Bond's debut recording, The Honorable Ones, produced by legendary pianist Oren Evans, features Steve Wilson on alto saxophone, Josh Evans on trumpet, Ben Wolfe on bass, Anwar Marshall on drums, and features special guests Gene Shinozaki, Claudia Akuna and Maya Holiday. The album release will be celebrated on February 24th at Exuberance in Philadelphia and February 27th at Smalls in New York City. Mike Bond, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the show. We have played a bit together in the past, and uh, I saw that you're coming out with a a new album very soon, which we will get to. I really wanted to have you here. Specifically, when I I think about you, I think about a couple things jump out uh, in your playing that I'd really like to just dive into. Um, Yeah, sure. And the first is is your pulse. Um, I, I think it's dope. I've always, like, really enjoyed it. Uh, where, where, what are your like main influences and how have you worked on that over the years? I think that, uh, a lot of my musical influences come from a a lot of different places. Um, one of the things that helped with my time a lot was, uh, actually playing, um, gospel music. So I, I used to play at, at this sort of Baptist church in, uh, Rutgers and I was, the keyboard player there and it was just keyboard and drums. And so 
actually it was the pastor there. This was while I was in school who was like, yeah, you got to lean back on that beat a little bit. <laughs> so it's like when I was hearing it from, from a, a difference, it wasn't my, I mean, I learned a lot from my professors at Rutgers as well, but mm-hmm. getting involved in a music where your pulse has to be um, pretty solid, where you have to have um, an understanding of, uh, of truly playing on the back of the beat. Um, it was like, oh yeah, it doesn't just exist within the jazz idiom Mm-hmm. And within popular music, but also within this gospel thing too. And I think that was a realization like, yeah, I got to get my time together. This is everywhere. Like, yeah. why did I only think it was in certain places? And so that, that really did help a lot. Um, I also just naturally, I love playing with drummers, mm-hmm. having that relationship. And maybe, it, maybe that love for playing with drummers came from, from the, the gospel church experience I had, but but yeah, definitely it was just feeling feeling that pulse, feeling that lockup, feeling that hookup mm-hmm. um, where where the trio comes together and then being able to comp with a drummer and hit those same um, sort of rhythms or have that same sort of mind meld mm-hmm. and not just imitate one another, but truly come together playing the same thing because that's what the music called for. You know, that's like the best experience as a trio. Yeah, I, I really like that. The The... The, the image in my mind of the pastor uh, t- telling you what's up. And yeah. that's, that's such a great example of like real life, uh, real life learning. And that's, that's a thing I, when I talk to younger musicians, uh, I always like to encourage them to have those kinds of experiences, get out of the school uh-huh. a little bit uh, coming from a, a sm- much smaller scene myself up in the Lehigh Valley. Right. Um, and going to Philly and going to jam sessions where there are amateur players who could just play circles around me and knew <laughs> so much more about the music than I, you know, right, right. you know, um, that's always such a great experience is those kinds of like jam sessions. Like I think of like, like a, a, in Germantown, like La Rose. I don't know if you ever went to that, that one. It's very similar. I go to that one. Reminds yeah. me a lot of like the candlelight. It's got like a oh, very okay, similar cool, vibe. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, everybody's super knowledgeable and you could just learn so much from even people who have never played an instrument ever. Right. And they, they just know what's, what's right and what's not when it's not happening. And they let you know like immediately. They're like, Mm-mm. like, <laughs> like you got to check this out. So, right. They're, they're straight up, straight up. Yeah. It's a Philly, it's a Philly vibe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, another thing that, uh, struck me the, the first time we played together, which was several years ago on, um, on a, a, a gig I threw together f- at the Lafayette bar in Easton. And it was you and me and, uh, the drummer, Mike Winicki mm-hmm. and John Swana. Right, right, yeah. and uh, and uh, and my buddy John Katz, uh, who's a regular in in my band. And the other thing that stuck out to me a lot was your octave playing, playing lines and octaves. Yeah, that like really jumped out at me as something something special. Mm-hmm. We we played a gig last night, and uh, you're talking about the Phineas Newborn uh, stuff you're checking out. So can you talk about playing in octaves and you know how that that fits into your into your vibe? Um, absolutely. Uh, so actually the octave playing, uh, came from my studies with Mike Ladon. I checked out a lot of Red Garland mm-hmm. and, um, at the time it's, he was one of the first guys that I started transcribing. 
and he had that two to three note swing uh, sort of phrasing and he made it you know uh he made it sound i mean obviously there was something authentic where people try and mimic that uh, through their touch to get that red garland touch to get red's touch and it sounds corny and it's like there was something about how he phrased it that unless you're like really checking him out, it's just hard to, to grasp. And so that's one aspect of Red's playing. The other is the octaves Mm -hmm. and he would play these octaves with the fifth in the middle. And you know, you'd be in, if we're talking music theory, like an a voicing one, one where, you know, it's separated by, by thirds where you don't have any seconds, but you have thirds in your left hand comp, and you're playing the octave with the with the fifth in it or the fourth in it and it creates this very full sound and i think what i do love about octave playing is when you play in those octaves especially when you hear him do that like on a ballad or something you really can't ignore that you're doubling down on a melody yeah <laughs> you're doubling down you're saying this melody is like it it grabs attention to what you're what you're playing melodically when you're playing in octaves and so especially when you have kind of a dissonant fourth or fifth in the middle that doesn't always stay within that that harmonic structure Mm -hmm. um so that's not always consonant i should say within that harmonic structure so yeah so i i really loved red's timing and um his phrasing there and then the the Phineas Newborn Jr. stuff that definitely came from Stanley Cowell, uh, who introduced me to him while in school. Here's Phineas is one of the records that I've been checking out a lot, mm-hmm. and like um, We Three, yeah, um, is is one that I love. You know, Sugar Ray is one of the songs that I like to play when I have a trio. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean Phineas, and we talked about this a little bit earlier has such a command of the instrument. Stanley said they used to watch him practice like after school. He used Mm -hmm. to watch Phineas practice for like four hours every day or something like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just love his touch and his command and his phrasing. And he, and he does wonders with the octaves too as well. So especially the two handed stuff. So yeah. In your transcribing of red and others, what is your transcription process like and or how has it kind of evolved over time? That's a good question. I think the my transcription process is really like I listen to I used to transcribe try to transcribe the whole thing and then I just get overwhelmed <laughs> and then I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Um nowadays I'll transcribe Sometimes I won't write it down, but I'll just listen to it and mm-hmm. just keep listening to it and not have the pressure of writing it down and just try to memorize the solo without, without, yeah, without the pressure of, of writing it, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'll say. And so just relying totally on ear and the ability to hear things, that's definitely, that's definitely helped, I think. Because mm-hmm. now I don't have the concentration of making sure that all my notes look clean. Because mm-hmm. to me, that it was always a two. It, w- it always divided my brain in half. I was like, okay, I got to make sure the transcription looks neat yeah. and makes sense. And I also have to play it in time with the recording and hear what's going on. And it was just like too many, 
divisions of my brain. Yeah. So that's what's changed a lot. I think I still have some some bad habits. Like I'll still I'll still write and then I'll still get to the point where I was like, I don't know, there's some crazy triplet (laughs) shit going on. So I'm just not I'm just gonna put it away for a while and then I won't like dig it up ever again. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, so I so I'm I'm not I have not completely mastered what's going on. But but what helps to really focus on just listening and not writing so much is that I can really hear the phrasing. And the stuff that I have written down, whether it's just one chorus or so, mm-hmm. not necessarily the whole so- solo, but trying to make sure that that chorus has identical touch to the recording. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. The frustration of trying to get it all in there perfect and when it's not just being like, what, what is this? Yeah. Do you, in the transcription process or, or even like learning a tune or with with any anything that you're practicing do you spend time just kind of visualizing at all like away from the piano just kind of like thinking through yeah imagining i, I would say that um in the car mm. we drive a lot yes and and so i actually visualize i mean to be honest i do visualize everywhere yeah everywhere uh especially if i if i haven't had the opportunity to practice and I'm just like thinking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Patterns and melodic choices and and even just like old bits of advice that I've gotten from yeah. over the years, like trying to go back. Because it's, it's, you know, they always say like, go back to the basics, go back to the basics and kind of clean the rust off of ideas that you thought you had mastered. But then you go back to the drawing board and mm-hmm. and a lot of that advice rings truer than ever like the the more you advance as a musician at least for me that's that's always been truthful yeah and so yeah so i i do think about the craft a lot and and how to how to get just more efficient it's like we have this urge to communicate exactly what we're feeling through this instrument as Stanley put it, the mirror of the mind and an extension of yourself. Mm-hmm. And as a kid that used to have speech problems, like I, I make it a big deal to be able to communicate clearly and articulate mm-hmm. and, and in an articulate way through my instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, could you speak a little bit about um, your early musical experiences? You started very young. Yes. Am I correct? Do you, Talk about how that relates to uh, your speech problems as a, as a child. Um, as a kid, I was a little bit, it was like funny. I was, I was very shy, but if you got me to open up, then I couldn't stop mm-hmm. talking nonsense. But I was, I was kind of clouded. Like I, I was described by my first grade teacher as a kid with his like head in the clouds or something. You know, I was mm-hmm. like a space cadet, if you, if you would. And my parents certainly saw me as like the sweet boy that's not as much of a processor as, you know, my brother is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but but at the same time, like it took me years to realize there was something more gifted in that. Mm-hmm. I think through music, um, that's where I saw my gifting. And because, you know, I have very intellectual family in the sense that my, my dad was a Harvard graduate and my brother also ha- shares a lot of the same. He he's able to think technically like that. I I found a gifting through music, and 
tried to kind of earn my place in that family through that. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, I'm half Chinese and, and so a lot of my upbringing, I bring that up because there was a little bit of a Chinese culture influence on that from my mother. Mm-hmm. It was a very much like, you know, if I played well, it was like, don't get a fat head. Mm-hmm. But if I didn't play well, then it was like, you need to practice more. And I got that from a young age. Yeah. You know, I started when I was four. I started competing classically when I was like my first performance at Carnegie Hall as a result of a high honors competition in Princeton. Uh, I was like six. Mm. And, uh, and yeah. And so, so I kind of grew up in that competitive yeah. mindset, I guess. Yeah. Th- thanks so much for sharing that. Um, I, I ask uh, this because I, I've, I noticed things like that a lot in, in artists, friends of mine and other musicians where they earlier in life saw one thing as, as like a weakness. And then it turns out later on and becomes their strength. Yeah. I, I really like how the arts can, can do that. Yeah. Or people can find their, their thing and their, their power through the arts, which is a bit of why I named the, podcast voice equals power podcast oh good it's all about the the artistic voice i didn't know that (laughs) i didn't know that um the artistic voice is our superpower like that's really what we got you know and when we when we focus it in and hone it in it can be a real real powerful thing uh, for us personally and society and other communities smaller communities and society as as a whole Absolutely. You have worked a bunch with tap dancers, specifically Savion Glover. Well, this, this year. Yes. This year, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've done uh, a bit with tap dancers, and I know a bunch of tap dancers. I always get a lot from playing with them. I think it's uh, a really great thing and kind of like an under kind of under the radar on the jazz scene a little bit like you don't see a whole lot of tap dancers showing up to jam sessions yeah there's a couple in philly that do a lot but i've always like learned a lot from them and their sense of time and and kind of getting into their world a little bit uh could you talk about uh working with savion and and just playing with tap dancers um well I, i think my first experience playing with with tap dancers in general was with uh, Michaela Marina Lerman, mm-hmm. who's I think part of Michael Muenzo and the Shakes now, and also doing her own projects and just killing it. And one of the first jam sessions that I ever played in 2011 or 2012 in New York at Smalls was with M- Michaela. And it was interesting to me because within the trio format or quartet format, uh, rather, with the tap dancer being the the lead mm-hmm. kind of instrument i had all these questions i was like oh, well who plays the melody and so i'm playing the melody and you're kind of tapping over it and and then how does the solo section go and you know the shout chorus was always clear mm-hmm. like we're leaving room for the tap dancer to 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 do their thing and that's i think a part of the the hoofer language mm-hmm. But yeah, I kind of had to learn what that was through just attending those sessions. And then, I mean, fast forward, it wasn't, 
So I played, I played those sessions for, you know, a couple of years, just would come and sit in. I did a couple of sessions with her where she hired me as a piano player. And, and so that was like my first two years in New York. So around 2013, 2014, and then fast forward to this year working with, with, uh, Savion, um, through NJ pack and getting to work with him directing kids Mm -hmm. and very talented young, uh, tap dancers pursuing their passions and watching him demonstrate and holding them to the same standard that he would any of his peers. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was, it was a nice, yeah, it was, it it was a nice reminder of what it was. And then it was also an extension of, uh, oh, this is what the Hoofer community is. I would say that Savion made it very clear. One of the big lessons was like, you have to know the history. If you're going to do that, if you're going to do that step, Mm -hmm. um, where did it come from and who came up with it? Don't just do it to do it. Otherwise there's no life behind it. There's, and I loved that Mm -hmm. because it's similar to everything else that we learned. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the octaves and where, where I got the octaves from. Like, I know that I got that from Red Garland. It's like knowing the history of what you're playing as opposed to just playing it the power of your words, mm-hmm. you know, the power of your statements. So. Absolutely. And you've also, uh, I've personally have never seen any other jazz musician working with is, uh, beatboxers. Oh yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I think yeah. that's super, super hip. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so Zakai Curtis, mm-hmm. uh, he recommended that, he he used to play with this breakdancing group. They're called the Full Circle Soldiers, and they were one of the uh, originating breakdancing groups in New York City. So they're they're really important to the New York City hip hop scene, breakdancing scene. Quick Step and Rockefeller, those are the two that kind of brought me in. When Zakai said that he couldn't do this project they were working on, he he Zakai put me in. Mm-hmm. And put me in contact with with them who who lead full circle. Gene Shinazaki was part of that group as well for this performance. Who is a world ranking beatboxer. That's when Gene and I got to work together a little bit. So we did this show in Dance Space, and basically it was it was not only not only did I play piano for it, I played a little jazz, I played classical, but it was mostly classical meets hip hop. And so we did a little Bach with some turntables and some break dancing and some beatboxing and i i played the role of a of a ballet instructor it was like a little bit of a play okay. as well and so um so i had to learn lines and everything i think that's why zakai zakai knew that i had a theater background mm-hmm. and that i had done acting before and he was like you know he's like this would be dope for you so mm-hmm. yeah so that's how i got involved and on one particular re- rehearsal when we were just waiting around for light cues and things like that I think they were doing a Q to Q. Gene and I just started doing this duo thing. I was like, yeah, I'm working on this one composition. And we just started jamming. And I think I posted one of those videos up on mm-hmm. on Instagram or Facebook. And after that, I was like, yeah, we got to do something together. Yes. And and I was just so happy with how he, you know, delivered on the record, you know. Yeah, so. absolutely. That was, that was, um, uh, how I found out about the record and uh once I I saw that I was like two seconds into it and I was like got a message Mike <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like you want to be on the podcast <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. I was like great. this is awesome this is like a, a really 
uh, interesting new n- new new avenue. I, I thought it was really um, in, and very interesting to me. It's another theme of the podcast is people who are doing new interesting stuff. Thank you for doing that and taking that, putting it out there like that. Can you talk a little bit about your theater background? I think that's like a pretty uh, interesting kind of unique uh, thing to you. I don't know a whole lot of jazz musicians that have uh, the theater background or like they'll do like a theater gig once in a while and be like, right. oh, okay, that was that happened. And, uh, right, whatever. right. Uh, well, the my involvement with theater started in college. I was like 19. And as a musician, you know, you spend all these hours in the practice room and you go home. I was pretty isolated. I mean, I had a couple of friends, but like for the most part, it was pretty lonely sort of lifestyle. I heard that one of my friends was playing at the Cabaret Theater at Rutgers with an old high school friend of mine. And he was like working on this show. And he was supposed to meet me and my bass player friend, you know, for, for a session. And he didn't show up because I guess he was working on the show. So we went to we went to confront him and be like, wait, you're, you're still rehearsing. I thought we were going to like jam or whatever. And so we went to the theater to be like, Hey man, like what's going on. And that's when I ran into my high school friend. I was like, Oh, you're working on the same show too. It's like, I haven't seen you in years. And she was like, I, we could really use a piano player. And I thought about it and I was like, okay, like whatever. And it kind of immersed me in a new community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, I, I began to be passionate about, about musical theater and started checking it out, did a little music directing, did music directing for Sweeney Todd when they did it at uh, Livingston Theater Company at Rutgers and like in 2010 or, or something. And then, you know, music directed Into the Woods, was a, was a rehearsal pianist uh, for that company after you know, I played some gigs where I completely bombed thinking I could just sight read a musical theater show. <laughs> like, it was, like there's some stupid stuff that went like where I made high schools feel very sad. And then after that, I was like, I, I need to be a rehearsal pianist so that I can get better at sight reading yeah. and read a whole book, mm-hmm. you know, and that really helped. And then, and then I, I, I decided to kind of similarly, uh, I waltzed back into cabaret theater cause I was just bored. I was like, uh, I heard they're doing auditions. Let me just check them out. And I was like, let, let me see how I do at this audition. Mm-hmm. And the director didn't take me seriously because like, I'm, I might get out of here. Like we're about to close up shop. And then I was like the last one to audition for their production of 12 Angry Men. And I was like, let me just give it a shot. And I put heart into the side that I read. I guess they liked what they heard. Mm-hmm. And I was cast in that show. So and I did some director scenes and stuff like that. And, and was in a short film and a couple of years later acted in this thing, did, did my first Shakespeare, uh, a couple of years ago. I try to find little pockets of time mm-hmm. to do theater when I can. My wife is also, uh, a, a director and an actress and a theater educator. And she runs her own company, Rethink Theatrical in North Brunswick. And so, so our group of friends is very much in the theater world. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, uh, how has um, your experience with with acting helped you with either music or band leading or just being on on stage? You know, it's funny. I find it easier sometimes to act on stage than it is to 
grab a mic and introduce your yeah. band. Uh-huh. I always feel like my tendency is to go towards sarcastic, cynical, you know, it's, it, it feels silly for me sometimes yeah. to be a band leader if I'm completely honest in terms of the showmanship of it. Yeah. And so I tend to try and make jokes and, mm-hmm. you know, deflect that sort of role. Yeah. But it definitely, I think, I think just like being on stage, you know, um, whether you're playing or you're acting, it is about listening for sure. It is about reacting. It is about being honest and truthful in the moment and believing in the thing that you're saying. I think all of those things come together. Yeah. Um, that you're not the most important thing on that stage. So if you have performance anxiety and you're focused on you and how you're doing, you have to realize who you're sharing that stage with and mm-hmm. that you're a team and that sense of community. All of those things are, are similar to to what I do in music. Yeah, for sure. That's great. I've done a bit of um of musical theater playing playing a couple shows, mostly like high school and college productions and I did an off-Broadway thing a couple of years ago and I've always really enjoyed the the um the community and just like the energy, especially like the actors put out. They have like so much energy, like pre-show energy or like post-show energy. I would find that very uh, uh, interesting to absorb that or take a little bit from them and be like, okay, yeah, I'm pumped. I'm pumped too. I would always appreciate that. Yeah. The, I'd like to switch gears a little bit, ask a couple of the, just a couple of questions that I have that I ask everybody. Sure. Lay it on me. Well, it's like a pool of questions actually <laughs> that I kind of, kind of pull from, from, we talked about transcription and visualizing and and kind of the internal processes of of music and i'm very curious about how different people like hear like how they what they're hearing process is like is it like a like an absorption is it more of a technical thing is it is there like a checklist of things you kind of process for say for example if you're hearing just like a like a, a tune you've never heard. Like last night on our gig, uh, there was a group of gentlemen who wanted to hear a Mariah Carey song, and they yeah. played it on their phone for like two <laughs> seconds, and then you're on the piano, uh, crushing it and doing um, um, mashups with Phantom of the Opera and and Claire de Lune. And so, like, what is your hearing process kind of like in a situation like that? Like, what are you listening for? Yeah, it depends on like, I think it depends on the environment. Like when I'm in the car and I'm listening to something, you know, what's difficult sometimes is that I'm thinking about my own playing and how it compares. Mm-hmm. And that can be a very dangerous thing because that's where envy grows and all this other stuff. But if you listen to to uh, kind of a piece of music with an open heart, and then say, I'm going to uh, apply that inspiration to my own playing. It's like, that's a different mindset. So it mm-hmm. depends on what mindset that you're in. Mm-hmm. Totally affects my ear. In a healthy mindset, I'm listening for for just how it makes me feel. I'm listening to the melody. I'm listening to how the accompaniment supports that melody or interacts with that melody. 
I'm listening for the space, the the ability to process what's going on, how the soloists kind of interact with one another from solo to solo, and in their own individual solo, are they telling that story? Is the groove something that you can really move to? Or if it has shifting kind of time signature, what is the is that pulse consistent? Does it that have a sort of pocket to it? What's the balance like between the the instruments and and like what what kind of natural ambience am I getting from from it? Mm. You know, that's that's kind of how I'm I listen to music. And then how does that personally affect me? All of that. But but I think if there's a story to tell, like if they're if there's a singer and they're and they're and they're singing it, are they really living the lyric out? You know, that definitely mm-hmm. comes from the musical theater thing, which was the start of the American songbook. Are do they believe it? What kind of colors, textures are they using? Um, what words are being emphasized? Um, how are they inflecting those words and why is that important? Mm-hmm. When you get to the bridge, is it different? Like is every A different if it's an A, B, A? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, if I thought of all those things at the same time, then then it would be sort of technical. Yeah. But but there is this like kind of micro macro way of listening, I guess, in my head as I perceive it, mm-hmm. where it's like the micro is like those little technical details, and the macro is overall. Did that transport me like any audience member? Mm-hmm. Are you are you kind of like? Uh telescoping in and out like focusing in and out like yeah. constantly between yeah yeah and trying to to make sure that that if i go micro i'm not which is a very hard thing for me personally it's like you know the weakness of an artist i guess is to not turn that into the comparison game yeah where you're like okay i'm listening to this artist kill it now i'm going to go back and listen to my stuff and make sure that i yeah. have those elements mm-hmm. cuz i think sometimes in in unhealth that is what I'm tempted to do. Yeah. And really it's like, I don't need to hear my own voice. Yeah. I need to hear other people's voices. Yeah. And not just always check my growth. Otherwise I'm not really listening to music. Yeah. I'm listening to ego. Yeah. Oh man. Know? That's so, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up and articulated it in that way. That's, I think I'm going to uh, name this episode title, listen with an open heart. Yeah, um, yeah. uh, cause, no, cause that's, that's, that's really quite happening. And I, I've kind of noticed that in, in myself, but I never really thought about it like that until now. So like, again, thank you. That's really super helpful to me, but I've noticed it with, I was playing in this, this like a uh, prog rock band and you know, we would do, we would play shows and I actually noticed it on jam sessions too. Now that I think about it where like, I'll be, you know, waiting to go and I'm listening to like the most ridiculous bass player ever, you know, that's yeah. got like crazy chops that I'll, I do not have at all. And then yeah. when it's my turn to go up. I'm swim my, my mind is swimming and trying to live up to that. And just, instead of just like playing to my strengths and just like being me. Yeah and playing with that, that rock band, what, what I used to do was I would, I would, it's in order to not tr- absorb their vibe the, of the other bands that were, you know, playing before us, I would just not be there. Mm. I would just like wait in the green room or just like go for a walk or something. But then 
I'm just missing an opportunity to to listen to something where you know what I mean? Yeah. That's man, cool. That's really a really super helpful thing for me to to think about and work on just internal. So Yeah. I mean I mean awesome. Stephen Pullman, there's this book that he wrote called The War of Art. Which is like yep. a really really hip book. But I mean to be able to to call out when resistance happens it is tough. And resistance is like a is like a sneaky little mother. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> because resistance will creep in in that and as soon as you feel envious or you listen to something and you feel like, Ugh, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Then it's like that shuts down your practice. That shuts yeah. down going to the gym. That shuts down like everything. Mm-hmm. Someone said recently that Sonny Rollins is like the first step is just putting your shoes on. I think Mike Nordsey told me that. He's like, yeah, you, you got to put your shoes on and just you got to go. Yeah, you just got to go and 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 yeah, and get to work and value yourself and your story enough that your story already has value because it's coming from you. Now you just have to tell it and choosing the words when we become obsessed about the technicalities and the technique. It's not like the big words that we that we use that make Mm -hmm. our story special. It's the fact that it comes from a unique place already. Mm -hmm. And so we've already made the audition in being unique as opposed to trying to be like somebody else. Because even the fact is that we like certain influences, like that's a part of our story makeup. Mm -hmm. And then the deeper question is why do we like those influences and doing that grunt work without being discouraged or comparing or envious? Like that is a, that is a day to day challenge. But I think if the foundation is that your story matters because it comes from you and you have value because your story is unique and special, like that makes the difference. Yeah. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, great shout out to the War of Art. That was a yeah. That's a favorite book of mine. I have the I got the audio book, and it's like oh yeah yeah yeah. It's like it's the, the how how he reads it is is really great. But that was a recent recent find for me. And oh yeah, quite a life changer. One that I recommend very highly. Is there an instrument that is not piano that you feel a special kinship with? Oh, the saxophone, actually. The saxophone, yeah. yeah, I played the saxophone for a while. You knew that, did you? I did. I did, but, uh, you know, I like to ask that question to everybody because some people have, like, really wild answers that you would never think of. Uh, I see. You teed it up, though. I was like, that was good, though. Um, Yeah, the the saxophone, I I mean, I played the saxophone in fifth grade. Actually, after, so I studied, um, I took formal piano lessons from age four to uh, 10 or 11, and then that was around the time where you know I was like burnt out by the competition scene so my parents pulled me out of there and I could kind of re-explore music on my own and at that same time was you know the fifth grade or fourth grade class where you choose your own instrument Mm -hmm. and I chose the saxophone I can't tell you why at the time it was like I chose it and then we're gonna see how this thing goes and then I ended up taking like lessons on saxophone for around 10 years Mm. and I played in uh you know, my high school jazz bands never really learned how to improvise just like, but I still played like first tenor in the studio band. Um, and then started learning how to improvise on piano while I was in lab band. And then I played in at Rutgers. I played in the symphony band. I never took formal lessons after that in college, but I got to play with some ensembles. And so tried to keep my, my saxophone chops up for that. So it was, it's good. I mean, I love, I love the instrument. 
I sold my tenor recently though. I'll be honest. I, I you know, I was like playing one instrument is enough. And, yeah. and like it, you know, shout out to those that, that can play multiple instruments. But, but I was like, yeah, you know, my, the, the high school that I sold it to was like, you can come back, play it anytime you want. It was a sweet deal. So yeah. I was about to pass up on it. Yeah. But I still have a, you know, Yamaha Alto somewhere in this apartment yeah. that I like to play on. That's like busted and, and whatever. But you know, I was in the marching band. I played, I played saxophone in the marching band. My first, yeah, no, all four years. But I was also a drum major. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the saxophone definitely has been there through my developing years, and was a catalyst into jazz, which led me to play, going back to the piano and really working on um, stuff there. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, definite kinship with that instrument. Yeah, you talk a little bit about the uh, circle back to piano competitions and the and the uh the i guess stress of it and and how how that was and i i asked this because i find it very interesting uh um i played soccer super competitively as, as a child and you know that got real competitive and yeah. like you know i burnt out from that so I'm, I'm just very interested in 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 that and i also see it a lot in musicians like coming out of college right coming out of college and real promising musicians and then they're just burnt out and then they're just like i'm done i i see um especially with um i would say probably most child prodigies i've known like like burnout and um can you talk about your experience and uh sure yeah i felt like at the time i had a piano teacher who shall remain nameless but I had a piano teacher that was also the head of one of those organizations. And because they were locally a piano leader of sorts within that organization, there was this pressure that their students had to be of a certain caliber. Mm-hmm. I think that's when my parents pulled me out because they felt that he was putting that pressure on me. But I even remember in lessons, although he's a very nice man, uh, he didn't really teach me what it meant to express yourself. He would demonstrate. He would say, get loud here, get soft here. But I never got the clear Mm. message that this is like, that your individuality matters Mm -hmm. within this art form. So, I mean, my, 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 I guess, impression of classical music might be somewhat altered. Like anybody's upbringing, when you've been brought up a certain way, you have a certain aversion to certain things or it's a certain difficult, uh, you have a certain difficulty to certain things. For me, it's classical music. For some classical music, it's, it's getting out of that mindset of like, oh, how I interpret things matters. Mm-hmm. Because in that field, sometimes it seems that there's this right and wrong way of doing things. Even the discussions that I had in college surrounding classical piano technique were like, oh, the Russian school is this and this mm-hmm. school is that. And yeah, that got a little overwhelming. So as a, as a child, I didn't really connect with the music. I kind of relied on muscle memory to get me through mm-hmm. and the pressure of, you know, playing the music memorized and just hoping that when I sit down, my piano, my, my fingers move and the piano makes the sounds it's supposed to. And then I bow, Yeah, you know, like, yeah, that, that to me was like torturous as a kid, Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. you know? And so... I'm surprised I stayed in it for that long. 
it was until it wasn't until I stopped taking lessons and was able to kind of like discover romantic composers like Chopin mm-hmm. on my own that that I realized like wow I can start to interpret things in my own way like what's rubato that means that I can play in my own time mm-hmm. sort of and kind of feel that push and pull like that was my gateway drug into jazz if you will yeah very interesting thanks for sharing that like i said i, I think that's a, a a thing that a lot of a lot of us go through in in different ways and yeah. different stages of our of our lives i would like to we alluded before about your album that's coming out and i'd like to talk talk a bit uh talk a bunch about that i'll let i'll let you talk about it where 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 did it where the inspiration come from and who's on it and all the stuff Okay, so my album is entitled The Honorable Ones. The title track, The Honorable Ones, just came from me composing at the piano, feeling particularly emotionally vulnerable, started playing things that reminded me of maybe my childhood. And I just, for some reason, I decided like this is because I'm feeling vulnerable and I'm feeling comfortable with my instrument, I'm going to take my phone and record it. And so I did a solo version of basically what you heard and, or what you hear on the record. And, and I was like, there's something there. Yeah. And I decided, you know, it's about time that I do a record. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I saw Orrin Evans at the Vanguard, who's always been a big support for me, you Mm -hmm. know, since I met him in like, 2009 or so he's always been a big support i knew i wanted to have him produce my next record Mm -hmm. and that i I had been putting it off because of the same fears that we're talking about yeah i just put off the record and i was like i just gotta rip off the band-aid because i because i know he's gonna give it to me straight and he did he's like you want to do this record you need to get x amount of dollars together and that's it Mm -hmm. um but he certainly helped in putting the band together and yeah the honorable ones it drops february 21st it features josh evans steve wilson ben wolf anwar marshall uh, and myself guest vocalists gene shinazaki who's a beatboxer mm-hmm. and uh, claudia acuna and maya holiday very cool is your writing process always kind of like that or do you have like other avenues into 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 writing I think the most effective writing process I have is when I'm recording, whether mm-hmm. it's I'm singing something in the car yeah, or I'm just sitting at the piano and I can just kind of like quiet my mind and just, you know, just play and then see where it goes from there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes so, it starts with a melody, sometimes it starts with chords, but whatever it is, if it has emotional intent yeah. behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it is. In your writing process, do you uh, do you kind of grab that initial or like record like the initial grain or nugget or seed, and then uh, flush it out from there, flush it out from there, or do you uh, does it come out like pretty pretty done? I think it's, it comes from that initial seed. Yeah, I can't hear everything happening yeah. at the same time until I have some sort of like I need to see the first rung on the ladder or at least mm-hmm. the skeleton of what I'm about to do. Yeah. Otherwise I don't have faith in like that I'm just gonna boom like hear everything. I'm envious of people that can do that. Yeah, me too. Like the Thad <laughs> the Thad Jones yeah, yeah, yeah. 
sort of meant where he could just be on the tour bus and just write out by by scratch like oh yeah i just hear all of the yeah i don't know you know shout out to every big band <laughs> you know composer ranger that can do that that is certainly not my mindset i need to start with some sort of a blueprint first mm-hmm. and then move on from there and and it is step by step for me yeah so do you, do you have any like uh particular tricks for when, when you get stuck on something like um like stuck halfway through a bridge or something like that to kind of like even if it's just like stopping and taking a walk or just like any kind of little little hack things that i think you... that goes back to steve stephen pullman's book is like it's it's that uh resistance yeah you know um for me, one of the songs on the record, Chase the Wind, mm-hmm. which actually, you know, my wife who just came in through the door, um, she was like, I was like, man, I have this paranoia that all my songs on this record sound similar. And so before I take this to the studio, it's like, oh, like, what do I do? And she's like, well, maybe you write another one. And I was like, because I knew that process would be one of that resistance and all yeah. that. And mm-hmm. I was like, damn, she's right. <laughs> and so... So I'll tell you the process for writing that one, yeah. which was like a month before the date was like, or even three weeks before the date. I kept, I just went almost like phrase by phrase mm-hmm. and just kept humming the melody. I was in the car, like hearing the melody. Like I had to flush it out for five days before like writing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's got to be something that I, I mean, I hate to say it, but like obsessively think about for mm-hmm. a while until I get it right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that feeling and the, uh, just kind of going back and back and back, even if you're not making any progress on it, just kind of like going through it. Like, okay, I'm just going to go through it again. And does something happen? No. Okay. Tomorrow I'll go through it or like right. in a couple hours, I'll go through it again and, and just go- going over and over and over again. And, um, yeah, that, that's very, you know, I, I know that, that whole struggle and, uh, and like you said, like, man, I wish I could just hear the whole thing all at once and just boom, but that's yeah. not, not how I, I operate. Yeah, 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 either. for sure. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, um, uh, Oren and I mean, he's been like such a pillar of the community for such a long time and mm-hmm. so, so helpful and uh, generous with so many of us. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, talk about your relationship with him for a little bit? Yeah. Oren, I met Oren through, actually he, he was doing, uh, Captain Black big band music with the Rutgers jazz band Mm -hmm. in 2010 or something like that while I was still in school. And so we connected there. You know what? Actually I'm messing this up. The first time that I met Oren, I, I just heard his records. I forget who who kind of like got me hip to his records, but the mm-hmm. Blessed Ones was one of the first records mm-hmm. that I that I heard. And I gave him a call and I forgot that it was Super Bowl Sunday and I was like, Can I get a lesson? And he was like <laughs> he's like, No man. <laughs> it's Super Bowl Sunday, whatever. And uh <laughs> and so that was like the that was like my first interaction with him ever. And then fast forward like a year or two later and uh, I was the student director for the New Brunswick Jazz Project, brand new organization, mm-hmm. bringing jazz back to uh, New Brunswick. So shout out to them, Virginia, yeah. Jimmy, and Mike uh, for doing that. And uh, Oren was doing a show at Makeda's, um, and they had they had shows there uh, on Thursday nights. 
and he needed a keyboard to borrow. And so I said, you know, I'd be happy to let him mm-hmm. borrow my keyboard. And so whenever he was in town, because he played pretty regularly with the New Brunswick Jazz Project, I'd have him borrow my stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in return, he had me sit in, and that's how he got to know my playing. We became friends after that. He started putting me on gigs and things that, you know, if he needed a sub, he would call me up. And then fast forward to, you know, my super senior year, I was in, I was a double, double major. So I had a fifth year and, uh, he, he said, like, I, I couldn't play with the big band that year because, because I had already been playing for four years and kind of her because like, you had your time. All right, cool. Now let other people have a chance to play with the big band. Mm-hmm. But I was like, but they're doing Captain Black music. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically he was like, you know you had your you had your turn like okay mm-hmm. and so they had the captain black big band concert and i played the jam session afterwards cool like with lee hogan's yeah orin heard me play and we were already like you know cool at that point but he was like how would you like to play with real captain black big band and that that same night after the Rutgers captain black big band concert and i was like whoa <laughs> so i was like we got a date at smalls we got a date at in in philly and um and he talked me through it, and that's how I got involved with, with Captain Black, and so that was a really surreal, poetic sort of experience, right? Yeah, I was envious that I couldn't play with the Rutgers band because they were doing the rap, yeah. And he was like, "How'd you like to play with the real band?" And that's how I got to know a lot of people in the band, yeah. You know, Lucas Curtis, Marcus Strickland, EJ Strickland, you know, Joel Fromm, um, Freddie Hendricks, Jeremy Pelt. You know, like a, a lot of those cats were through just like being the sub mm-hmm. on, on Captain Black Big Band Date. And so I definitely owe Oren a lot for that. And he yeah. continues to support me, introduce me to people. And so he's like my big brother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool. So I don't know if that was a little long-winded. but No, that was great. That's a great, great showcase of, you know, how much Oren means means to the community. You know, he's he's been yeah. doing that for... For a while and and also his music is amazing yeah <laughs> you know his amazing vibe amazing yeah. time absolutely yeah. i i don't remember if we talk if we mentioned this but your release for the honorable ones is at exuberance correct yeah i have two releases yes that week um february 24th which is a monday it's going to be at exuberance from 7 p.m to 10 p.m mm-hmm it's going to feature Josh Evans, Todd Bayshore, Ben Wolf, and special guest Victor Lewis. It's going to be on drums. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and myself. And then you said there was another day. And then Smalls is the uh, original band for the record. So Josh, Steve, uh, Ben, and Anwar Marshall. Cool. And yeah. when, when is that? And that's going to be uh, February 27th which is a Thursday at Smalls Jazz Club in the Village from 7.30 to 10. Very cool. I look forward to that. I'm going to be at the the Exuberance, one that's not, not super far from me cool. in Philly. And uh, I hope to see a lot of uh, my listeners there as well. And, yeah, that would uh, be great. And uh, where, uh, before, we, before we wrap this up, um, how can people stay in touch with you? How can people find you? What's the good, the good platform? Well, I mean, uh, I, I'm very active on Facebook, 
you know, Mike Bond on Facebook. And then on Instagram, my handle is MGB0ND007. So MGBond007, <laughs> except there's a zero instead of an O in Bond. And then my, my website, subscribe. It's www.mikebondmusic.com. Yeah. Great. Mike Bond, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Really appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, best of luck to you. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, your voice is your power.